When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is an RNZ podcast. The autobiography of Richard Burgess, the murderer, written in my dungeon drear. Town of Nelson, year of grace, 1866. To God be ascribed all power and glory in subduing the rebellious spirit. You're listening to the words of a killer. Potentially the most prolific killer New Zealand has ever seen. It's not the voice of an actual killer, of course. That's an actor in rehearsal. His name's Cameron West, and he seems like a pretty decent guy. Certainly not the type to cold-bloodedly rob and murder upwards of 30 people. You know, actors often say it's quite fun playing villains, but do you find it, do you find it that way, or do you, do you find it a bit disquieting? My director's constantly telling me I'm too too angry. <laughs> um, no, I, I actually don't mind it. I, I, I quite like the, the the villainous aspects of Burgess. He's a strange killer of fish because he should be smart enough to have a social conscience, morals, but he, he just yeah is quite willing to put them aside. I've managed to talk my way into Cameron's rehearsal room in Nelson because he's playing the role of Richard Burgess in a theatre production called Mangatapu. And Richard Burgess is the black sheep we're talking about today. Mangatapu focuses on the killings Burgess and his gang were best known for. The murder of five men on the Mangatapu track just outside Nelson in 1866 crimes which saw all but one of the gang hung, the lone survivor being Joseph Sullivan, who turned traitor to save his own skin. Just down the road from Cameron's rehearsal room is the cemetery where the five victims are buried. The publicist for the play, Sarah, very kindly drove me out to take a look at it. So they're all buried together in the one place well, then? I, that's what I don't know. I have to read it again to see if, it, if it's actually... It's a big cemetery on the side of a hill overlooking the harbour. The higher up the hill you go, the older the gravestones get. Right near the top is a sort of obelisk. Around the base, there are the names of the victims, and there's an inscription running down the length of one side. This monument was erected by public subscription in memory of five late residents of the province of Marlborough who were interned here. They were waylaid, robbed and barbarously murdered by a gang of four strange... Is that strange? No, bush oh, bush, oh, four bush rangers on the Mongatapu mountain in this province June 12 and 13, 1866. But the murders commemorated by that monument might just be the tip of the iceberg. From my research and from sort of logic, it seems to me that they probably killed at least 20. Potentially, he, he was New Zealand's worst um, serial killer, you could say. That's Wayne Martin. He wrote an exhaustive biography of Richard Burgess, Murder on the Mangatapu. The reason I think the story still grips us is that Burgess clearly wanted us to remember him. While he was in prison, he wrote a 46-page confession detailing his entire life story. That's what Cameron West was reading earlier. Mark Twain called it without peer in the literature of murder. 
at the time and um yeah, it, it certainly does make for amazing reading. For one thing, it's almost astonishingly well written for a guy who was, you know, a career criminal and started off as a as a thief in his very early days. And that, and that's kind of the paradox about Burgess was that he does he did seem to be quite well educated. His mother, who he said had very high education, she probably schooled him and um, gave him a good grounding and interest in literature. And um, because you know he's all through it. Uh, you know, he's quote, quoting classic texts and, uh, you know, anecdotes from ancient texts and scripture. Mark Twain was clearly fascinated by Richard Burgess's confession from a literary perspective. He wrote a lengthy commentary on it in his travelogue, Following the Equator, A Journey Around the World. It is a remarkable paper. For brevity, succinctness and concentration, it is perhaps without its peer in the literature of murder. There are no waste words in it. There is no obtrusion of matter not pertinent to the occasion, nor any departure from the dispassionate tone proper to a formal business statement. For that is what it is, a business statement of a murder by the chief engineer of it. That's a pretty good testimonial. It's a pity Richard Burgess never took up a career as a writer. Unfortunately, while Burgess's mother was able to impress a love of literature into him, while he was still a young boy in London's Hatton Garden, she wasn't able to suppress his violent and criminal streak. It seems to have been triggered when his mother took up with um, another man who already had a family and there was a lot of sort of jealousy and infighting and basically Burgess couldn't wait to get away from um, family life and, and fend for himself. But he'd certainly shown signs of violence and unruliness uh, prior to then. He'd been expelled from several schools and... And there was the incident of the people who had a, a pencil stuck up his nose and, and the young Dick Hill, as he was known then, sort of punched that up into his navel cavity and that's a pretty nasty event right there. And I, and I guess he just sort of followed your, your classic Victorian street criminal way of life, if sort of from um, petty pickpocketing to crimes of violence, etc., and, and eventually caught up with him and saw him transported to Australia. It sounds very Charles Dickens, and in fact, this is exactly the time and place Dickens was writing about in books like Oliver Twist. On the ship, being transported to Australia, 16-year-old Burgess got a second chance. He was offered an apprenticeship by a stonemason. He took it up and actually used some of those skills later in life when he tried to tunnel out of Dunedin Jail. But it wasn't long until Burgess was drawn back into a life of crime in Australia. He was just hopelessly addicted to crime and the spoils of crime, I think, and probably the thrill of it. He couldn't bear the thought of going straight. And in fact, he, he had several opportunities over his life to go straight and actually make a good living. He was in league with a, a butcher on the Ballarat goldfields, and I think he was the only butcher operating on those particular fields and they were making an absolute killing. Burgess said that, you know, he could easily have lived comfortably had he pursued that. Part of the problem was that the goldfields of Australia weren't the best place to kick his crime addiction. The Victorian gold rush began in 1851. It's the same gold rush which brought James Prendergast to Melbourne, as we mentioned in last week's episode. What we didn't mention last week is that the Victorian goldfields were a perfect storm for crime. 
You've got lots of portable wealth in the form of gold nuggets and hardly any police. More than 80% of the force quit to join the gold rush. And also just the sheer prevalence of convicts, you know, um, transportee convicts, most of whom were sort of released on ticket of leave when they reached Australia, sort of a probationary system. They were just overrepresented, if you like, in the, in the population. Burgess operated as part of a gang robbing miners. At this stage in his career, murder usually wasn't part of the plan, although his confession did mention killing one miner who recognised him during a robbery. But that policy changed after he was arrested in 1852 and introduced to the horrifically brutal criminal justice system. His stints on the floating prison hulks were particularly horrific. They were old, run-down ships anchored off the coast of Melbourne. I think he spent about eight years on the prison hulks. He was, first of all, put on the, the president, which was the, the hulk that they reserved for the very worst prisoners. And that was extremely brutal with um, beatings and sort of confinement on, you know, below deck with, you know, hardly any air or light and um, a sort of a porthole where the sea would just sort of rush in over you. Mouldy starvation rations and... I think the anecdote which stood out to me most was the <clears throat> ship's barbers complaining they couldn't cut the men's hair because they had so many head wounds. Like, yes, just <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's that's quite graphically illustrates it. Really, the prisoners on those hulks they swore that if they got out, that um, they weren't coming back to a place like this. They were not going to leave witnesses to testify against any of their crimes. So. Um, that, that was the seeds of, you know, the monster that he became and also this policy of um, killing not to leave witnesses. Burgess was involved in several escape attempts from the Hulks, including one which resulted in the deaths of three people, one of them a police officer. He only escaped being hung thanks to a legal technicality. Eventually, in 1859, Burgess was released and linked up with an old partner in crime, Thomas Kelly. They planned to return to a life of crime on the goldfields, but times had changed. Australia had become too hot for him, really. He, he was known, known everywhere. Police were attributing crimes to him that he hadn't committed. And uh, so him, he and Thomas Kelly fled to New Zealand. The, the other factor there was that the New Zealand goldfields were getting underway and obviously attracting a lot of publicity. So there was that added lure of the gold, you know, they always followed the gold fields. So, yeah, that's how they ended up in um, well, Dunedin initially. It didn't take long for Kelly and Burgess to get back up to their old tricks robbing miners in the Otago gold fields. But they came unstuck after the attempted robbery of a campsite near the Tuapeka River. They robbed a digger in the middle of the night and basically he, he kicked up a bit of a noise so a whole lot of other people come out of tents, etc., and... They escaped to their tents, and the next morning the cops came by looking, uh, searching the tents. They were led by Sergeant Major Hugh Bracken, who was a really formidable and pretty impressive character. One of the other diggers from another tent pointed to Burgess's tent and said, I think the guys that you're after are probably there. Burgess, Kelly and their gang burst out of the tent and go racing up a hill. One police officer, Sergeant Trimble, gives chase, and a gunfight breaks out. 
Sergeant Trimble's forced to retreat and go get help. Burgess and his mates make their escape and set up their camp for the night in an isolated gully. But the next morning, uh, Trimble and Bracken were scouring the countryside looking uh, looking for the fugitives and spotted this tent. Sort of early morning dawn sort of thing and there was a dawn, dawn raid and... Um, Rounded them up and, and took them to Dunedin Prison, yeah, where they, where they served uh, three years jail for that. In another little black sheep crossover, Burgess and Kelly were actually represented in court by James Prendergast. New Zealand was a pretty small place in the 1860s. Anyway, while he was in prison, Burgess was involved in leading a sort of organised protest about poor conditions. As punishment, he was blindfolded and received 36 lashes. After those lashes, a fellow prisoner claimed he saw Burgess go down on his knees, clasp his hands together in prayer, and say this. I swear by heaven to take a human life for every lash and indignity that they've laid upon me. 36 lives for 36 lashes. He really did have a flair for the dramatic, and he may have actually followed through on that threat. More on that in a moment. Burgess and Kelly were released from Dunedin Prison in 1865. Over the next three weeks, they made the gruelling and dangerous hike from Dunedin up north across the Waitaki River and then inland over Arthur's Pass to Hokitika, the site of the latest gold rush. And they certainly were under the police spotlight there. They'd been well warned in advance and um, the police were watching their every move there. And yet they seem to have managed to go on a bit of a crime spree, even while the police knew they were there and knew that they were dodgy guys. You're right. It, it does seem amazing that they could get away with, with so much when they were under the spotlight. But um, one of the problems was I think the West Coast was quite lightly policed. It was um, under-resourced. And also there was a huge criminal network on the coast. I mean, I couldn't believe it when digging into both like Burgess's confession and Sullivan's account and, and sort of newspaper accounts um, of the trials that subsequently happened on the coast, just how extensive that criminal network was. Um, so yeah, the, the police certainly had their work cut out over there. Burgess, Kelly and a few other associates went from town to town on the West Coast robbing and murdering people. Exactly how many people they killed is unknown. Sullivan later said it was as many as 30. If that's true, Burgess might have fulfilled that dramatic promise of a life for every lash. Burgess himself doesn't talk about any West Coast murders in his confession, presumably to avoid implicating other members of the gang in more killings. But around the time he was operating on the West Coast, there was an unusual spike in the number of dead bodies turning up in rivers. I mean, obviously the, the rivers and floods and everything over there were, were pretty treacherous. You know, lack of swimming ability and drunkenness and risks taken to, in pursuit of gold and all the rest of it. So there were obviously a lot of drownings. But then that also makes the rivers the, the perfect cover, you know, to dispose of bodies. Eventually, the gang decided they were getting too well-known on the West Coast and travelled up to Nelson. By this time, there are four people in the Burgess gang, Richard Burgess himself, his best mate Tom Kelly, Philip Levy, who mostly operated as a fence for the gang, and Joseph Sullivan, the man who would eventually betray them. The four men were all but broke when they arrived in Nelson. They considered holding up a local bank, but decided the police presence in the town was too heavy, so they left town via the Mangatapu track. 
they were actually heading over the Mangatapu track to, they were heading to Picton because Burgess had heard that there was a bank worth robbing at Picton. When they were staying in Canvas Town, then Burgess decided to send Levy, um, who was the sort of spy and the facilitator of crime, if you like, just on a reconnaissance mission. Well, you know, head down to Deep Creek and and see if there's anything worth uh, doing down there. While he was snooping around Deep Creek, Levy heard that four men were planning on walking back along the Mangatapu track to Nelson with the intent of setting up businesses on the west coast. Burgess and the gang figured they'd be carrying a lot of money on them, so raced back along the track to set up an ambush. Again, incidentally, you know, they overtook this sort of harmless old man, James Battle, and they kind of just murdered him on a, on a whim, you know. It looks like he might have something in his pocket, who knows. So so they killed him basically on their way to um, set up the ambush for the, for the main target, which were the, the Deep Creek men. The gang set up their ambush near a giant boulder, now known as Murderer's Rock. It's near a stream which was known as Murderer's Creek until they renamed it 50 years later. Presumably someone thought having two landmarks named after the Mongatapu murders was a bit much. The gang split up two men behind the boulder, the other two further along the track. And the idea being that once the Deep Creek men had passed the rock, then uh, Levy and Kelly would sort of round up behind them with their guns and Sullivan and Burgess would would approach them from the front. Stand! Bailer! Face the rangers with your hands behind your backs! They led them off the track, way up into the bush. The initial plan was to strangle these men. They didn't want the noise of gunshots to to be heard. The first of the four travellers, James Dudley, was led off from the group. Thomas Kelly whipped out a rope, pulled it around Dudley's neck and strangled them to death. But the noise of all that thrashing about spooked the gang. They decided speed was more important than stealth. The remaining three men were stabbed and shot. Just totally in in cold blood. I mean, these men were fully compliant. They weren't struggling or anything. They were just executed. And that was basically carrying through this leave-no-witnesses uh, policy that they had. Um, but, you know, that they could do it and be so matter-of-fact about it, you know. And, and Burgess, in his account, almost revels in the detail of um, what they did to these men, you know, including the expressions on their faces and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it, it, it is pretty, pretty chilling. Burgess and his gang went back to Nelson, flushed with success and loaded with cash. They spent up large and started making plans for their next big crime, holding up one of the big banks in town. That plan called for the entire staff to be murdered. They were going to take one of the staff away and sort of murder him and bury him with the hope that uh, he'd be suspected of being the perpetrator. And the details of that were pretty horrific as well. They were planning to force poison down their throat. Which... Exactly, yes. Yep. Which, which yeah. is just, you know, just, you just horrendous. For, forcibly poisoning what it would be at least sort of six, ten people. You almost wonder how they could achieve that. But, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah horrendous, yeah. horrendous. But luckily for the bankers of Nelson, the gang had made a couple of crucial mistakes. For one, they made themselves much too obvious in Nelson. Remember, they'd just been through town with barely two coins to rub together. Now they were flush with money and spending it freely on fancy clothes and alcohol. 
That made people suspicious. Also, it turned out there was a fifth member of the Deep Creek group who'd been lagging behind his four unfortunate friends, a guy called Henry Moller. When Moller arrived in Nelson to find his mates had vanished, he immediately raised the alarm. Burgess and his gang were rounded up and imprisoned on suspicion of murder. But this is where the tale turns from murder to treachery. A poster is put up outside Sullivan's cell, which reads like this. A reward of £200 will be given to any person who will give information that leads to the conviction of the perpetrators. Or His Excellency the Governor will grant a free pardon to any person implicated in such murder, except to the actual murderer or murderers, who shall give such information as shall lead to the conviction aforesaid. And Sullivan, who it seems had a bit of an eye on this scenario all along to rat on his mates, you know, the offer of the reward and a pardon for someone who wasn't a direct murderer um, was the opportunity which he took up very willingly. Then you've got, you know, Burgess, once he found out that Sullivan had turned traitor, that's what prompted him to write his uh, famous confessional memoir. That famous memoir had three purposes. First, vengeance. Burgess wanted to implicate Sullivan in the murders so that he wouldn't get away with his betrayal of the gang. Second, loyalty. Burgess wanted to put all the blame for the murders on himself and Sullivan so that Kelly and Levy could walk free. Third, fame. Burgess was determined that he'd be remembered. His confession just has too much detail, too much colour in it for anything else. For example, there's this one scene he describes when he was still a teenager in London, coming out of jail for the first time after being convicted of robbery. Waiting outside for him, there were two groups of people. On one side, his mother and sister, and on the other, some members of a street gang he was associating with. When I gained the outside, there were my two best friends I had in the world waiting my coming. My mother and Emma. On the opposite side, there were some of my companions who came to claim me as their own for the dissolute life I led prior to my incarceration suited my pampered and vicious ideas of life. So, after all my rash promises to return to my neglected parent, I left her weeping for her erring son and responded to the invitation of my companions. And looking back at this incident, I blush for very shame. Here was a kind mother and foster sister On the other side was vice and crime awaiting their victim. I chose the latter of these courses because my very nature was bad. The only point of telling that story, as far as I can tell, is drama. And speaking of drama, let's return to that Nelson rehearsal room where we started this episode. All of his deep dyed and bloody sins. Do you really believe that, Master? While I was at that rehearsal, I got chatting with the playwright and the director of the Mangatapu play. Them being the experts in drama, I wanted to know what they made of Burgess's famous confession. Yeah, I mean, there is that. There's sort of two two schools of it that he's a narcissist and everything he did was just for show and it was all fake. You know, his this is just a need, the playwright. In his confessions, constantly he's claiming the reason I'm writing this is to turn other people from doing what I did. 
like basically don't do a life of crime and sin because it, this is where it ends up. So it does lead you back to the question of whether it's a genuine repentance. Yes, or whether exactly. It's, whether it's fake, yeah. whether that is just part of his grandstanding as well. That's right. And That's we, Charles Burton, the director. We still don't know. You know, it, it's there's certainly room for either interpretation. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I sort of wonder if it's not a bit of both when it comes to the the grandstanding thing, because I mean, people obviously create their own internal story of their life, and if you want to sort of if you are in Burgess's position, you've got to have some kind of justification for doing the things you do. And maybe this is just his internal monologue of, you know, this yeah. is why I am the way I am. I mean, for me, I thought from reading his confession a number of times and being sort of quite moved by it, okay, maybe I was conned. <laughs> but I, I tend to think it was reasonably sincere but also highly compromised because of the fact that he was probably lying about um, Kelly and Levy, trying to get them off. Now, for good reasons, but still lying, and that compromises the whole thing. Despite his lengthy confession, Burgess pleaded not guilty to the Mangatapu murders, presumably because it gave him a chance to confront the traitor, Joseph Sullivan, in court during his trial. Back to Wayne Martin. That must have been the highest, most riveting drama. These guys are defending themselves, but doing so with great skill and you had Sullivan on the stand for 12 or 13 hours or something like that who's undergoing this vicious cross-examination by Burgess and Kelly and parrying them off with equal skill because Sullivan again, he was an intelligent guy, very cunning, they couldn't break him. The atmosphere in that courtroom must have been electric, it just would have been amazing to witness. In fact, it would, make it, it would make an amazing movie. And the final climactic scene is yet to come. Burgess, Kelly and Levy are all convicted of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. Probably for me, that's the most surreal and, and dramatic because you've got Burgess who seems to have just burst out, you know, exuberance, exultation. This is my moment in history. From the moment he he sort of woke up that morning, he strides up and he takes that centre noose and he, you know, kisses it and declares to everyone, you know, I, I greet this rope as a prelude to heaven. You know, at another point he looks up at this, he looks up and he, he says... What a beautiful day. This is a glorious day. I feel like it is my wedding day. Then you've got Kelly, who for some time has been sort of undergoing, you know, a bit of mental collapse, really. And on the day of the executions, he's a, he's a wailing, gibbering mess, you know, and he's he's giving speeches and he's moving away from the drop and they're having to push him back. And Kelly was, was fighting all the way and you know when when the trap um, dropped whilst the others died quickly uh, Kelly was sort of straining and struggling and, and fighting and twitching and you know and, and you've got this the horrendous uh, scene of the hangman having to dive down below the scaffold and, and sort of swing on Kelly to complete the job I mean it's just that whole day of the executions it's um, it sort of Still haunts me occasionally when I, th- you know, when you think about it. Just my God, what, what a day that must have been. And in death, 
Burgess gets his wish for fame. I mean, we're talking about him right now, aren't we? A hundred years later, the story of his life and death still fascinates, and Justin Eade, the playwright for Mangatapu, doesn't think that fascination is going away anytime soon. Yeah, I think there's always bits and pieces being done on it. There's magazine articles and sort of a um, couple of TV pieces in recent years. Obviously, you know, the film is sitting there waiting to happen, <laughs> which I've written. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it is a thing that cries out for a film. It's kind of a New Zealand Western, I guess, and um, it, it's probably our only kind of uh, well-known Western story. So, um, yeah. After their execution, all three men were decapitated and their heads were cast in plaster so they could be examined by a phrenologist, state-of-the-art science for the time. Those casts are still on display at the Nelson Museum. I had a chance to go look at them when I was there with Sarah, the publicist for the play. Okay, so who have we got? Thomas Kelly on the left, Philip Levy on the right, and right in the middle we have Richard Burgess. Wow. sort of can't help but think he'd be quite stoked if he knew that these were still here, that people were still sort of... That Burgess would be stoked. Yeah, that people were still sort of coming to, to look at this whole thing and this whole story. You know, it's a bit ironic, this note here, donated in 1868 by Mr. Clouston, a note in the museum records, and it's a quote, resolved that they with other monstrosities be put away where they cannot be seen. So obviously someone decided that these shouldn't be on display, but they've sort of changed their mind there. The one member of the gang missing from that lineup is Joseph Sullivan. In the end, he was granted a pardon for his part in the Mangatapu murders, but was forced to leave New Zealand and lived out the rest of his life in misery. He wound up spending his final days in a rest home in Western Australia, hated not just for his part in the killings, but for his betrayal of his mates an even worse crime in the eyes of many. Special thanks to Wayne Martin, Cameron West and the whole team behind the Mongatapu play. That play is actually touring this month, by the way, if you want to check it out. It'll be in Havelock on October 19th, Blenheim on the 27th, Picton on the 28th, Takaka on the 29th. This is the last episode of Black Sheep Season 2, but don't worry, we'll be back next year. To tide you over, I have two podcast recommendations. Neither of them are out yet, but they will be in the next couple of weeks. Keep your eye out on the series and podcast page at rnz.co.nz and you'll see them pop up. The first is Pants on Fire, a series all about how and why people lie. The other is The Lost, a true crime series about people who've gone missing and those they left behind. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. This episode was engineered by Phil Benge. We had voice acting help from Nick Piasco, Cameron West and Simon Dickinson. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. 
So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.